Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Guardian. Boris Johnson goes for a bike ride as free school meals come under scrutiny. I'm Jessica Algott, Deputy Political Editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. But a minority of people are putting the health of the nation at risk by not following the rules. Two weeks into England's third national lockdown and we're all still a bit fuzzy about the rules. It doesn't help that cabinet ministers are unable to answer seemingly simple questions about outdoor meetings. And the prime minister is caught taking a cycle trip seven miles away from home. Police chiefs are once again asking for clarity on the latest COVID guidelines. And if they aren't sure of them, how on earth can the public be? The government will also once again have school meals on their mind as Manchester United footballer Marcus Rashford highlighted the inadequate free school meals being sent to parents under the £30 government voucher scheme. How will the government fix this latest mess? The most the leader of the opposition can do is ask for more restrictions and maybe criticise the government's handling of the pandemic while simultaneously supporting measures they've brought in to curb the spread. But can Keir Starmer break away from reactive mode and carve out a clear vision for the Labour Party in 2021? We'll discuss that later on. Plus, Lisa O'Carroll reports back from her latest trips to the ports of Dover and Calais and talks about what Brexit might mean for UK-EU trade in the coming months. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, the Prime Minister went for a cycle and Marcus Rashford made free school meals a major talking point once again. To talk about this and more, I'm joined by my colleague, Guardian columnist Raphael Baer. Hello, Jess. Hello. Lovely to have you back on the podcast. We're into the second week of a third national lockdown and yet uh, neither the police nor the government is quite sure whether we can uh, sit outside and ha- have a cup of tea or, or even carry a, a, a takeaway coffee as we go for a walk with a friend outside. And it all seems quite inconsequential. But the fact that we keep time and time again getting into these kind of little details, little niggles, that means that there's something going on with the broader messaging, do you think? I think there are two issues here. One is, yes, there is something going on with the broader messaging, which has been a little bit confused all along. Uh, And it's just a a practical thing when the rules have changed a lot. It's hard for people to keep track. But actually, that's really an expression of the wider political cultural problem, which is that confidence in the government corrodes people's sort of willingness to give, as it were, the benefit of the doubt to the rules. So you can't describe in minute detail absolutely everything that 
is permitted or isn't. And there's always going to be, or if you try and do that, you're always going to create contradictions. You know, it is a brisk walk with a friend leisure or is it exercise? You know, these things, they, they can't be described in law. So what you want is some kind of relationship of trust between the person who's saying these are the rules uh, and people saying, okay, I get the spirit of the rules. So I don't need to fret about the letter of the law because I'm going to obey the spirit of the law. But because that spirit aspect has been depleted, everyone's obsessing about the letter. Those things aren't really in sync and no one really understands what the difference is between a message the prime minister has delivered about the cultural behaviour that ought to be done and what the law actually is. So the whole thing is basically a mess. But some of that is displacement activity a bit because we're all just really stressed out, wound up, tired, bored, frustrated and scared. The Prime Minister himself came under some flack for what it felt like was kind of bending the rules, although probably actually not bending the rules, which was going for a cycle around the Olympic Park at the weekend. And Downing Street are kind of briefing under the radar and annoyingly not you know, in in public, saying, you know, it's all done in a COVID secure way and driving somewhere to take exercise is not a breach of the rules, even though we're not saying that that's what the PM did. It's clearly going to be something that will invite some scrutiny, isn't it, for him to do that? Well, yes, it's this issue of the spirit of the law as opposed to the letter of the law. And I think whether or not people are tolerant of what the Prime Minister did or what anyone did in those circumstances will depend partly on their instincts on how diligent you should be in observing the letter of the rules, but also how patient they are with the government as leaders in this moment. And and the long shadow of that Dominic Cummings, Barnard Castle episode, you know, it, it seems like a, a weird thing to still be obsessing on, a sort of a scab to still be picking at. But all the polling and everyone I know who works in political strategy and, and talks to voters and MPs, they say it was such an instrumental moment in people thinking, hang on a second. So you know, I didn't go to this event or I couldn't attend a funeral or a wedding, all these really important life events that people sacrificed, terrible things that people went through. And yet that guy who works for the prime minister can do whatever he wants. And so that sense in which it's about a culture of trust and confidence in leadership is what makes a lot of this stuff toxic. Pretty Patel, talking to the police, took Tuesday evening's press conference. We haven't, I don't think we've heard from her since May. And in the same breath, she announces 1,243 more COVID deaths, which is the second highest daily death toll, and says also that the rules are tough enough. And this week we've heard kind of from Downing Street sources that it's that this is this is enforcement week. This is the week they really want to drive home the message of enforcement. And in fact, the re- the restrictions don't necessarily need to be tightened, although they are still more lax than they were in March when things were astonishingly better in, uh, than they are now. Is there anything behind this which is an attempt to deflect blame back onto the public away from the government? Is it is it strategic like that, or is it? Or is it just that they really don't want to introduce more restrictions? I think it's more the latter, that the issue is that they don't really want to be seen to be constantly piling on the restriction. And there is actually a pretty good argument for saying you have to allow a little bit of room because there's a point of strictness at which it becomes so repressive that people just can't be bothered and then you lose control and 
or for example, on the, in terms of exercising or doing stuff outside, if you limit that, what will actually happen is people are so determined to just see another human being, they end up trying to hide it away and meeting indoors, which is much more dangerous. So there is a, a certain rational argument. What we're seeing now is to a substantial extent, as I understand it, a consequence of the relaxation you had towards the end of last year and in, in particular around Christmas. And that was a government decision and it was a decision that could have been made differently. And frankly, the people who are in hospital and dying now caught the disease weeks ago. So it does look a little bit like you're saying that there is this terrible thing going on right now and the problem is people aren't behaving correctly. The causation thing isn't the, what the government seems to want us to think it is. And that's just bad science communication and a bit cynical as well, frankly. But it's not entirely surprising under the circumstances because the alternative was would be admitting that Boris Johnson dithered and prioritised his image as sort of blonde mop Santa saying you can have a Christmas gift of a hug with your nan, which was a terrible idea. There's the other the other area which kind of got touched on in the press conference last night uh, and seems to be a place which the government really doesn't it's for some reason doesn't want to go is is this idea of home working. We did a we did a story a bit earlier in the week where you look at the transport for London figures and London is not the country, but they're three and a half times higher of people using public transport than they were in the in the first lockdown. And there is a suggestion that more people are in the office than they were before. And yet the government doesn't really seem to want to have any enforcement in that regard or even hammer that message home as much as it could do, because obviously this is a key, it's a big economic factor in that. Do you think that's something where actually there could be more language around? I think certainly given that the fundamental sort of three word maxim that defines a proper sort of an ultimate lockdown is stay at home and that really landed in march and that's what people basically did uh, unless they really were in the kind of jobs that they were both essential and literally couldn't be done from home uh, and although stay at home is the formal rubric under which we are operating now there definitely isn't the same emphasis uh, and I can only presume that that is the residue of, for want of a better word, Sunakism, which is the idea that you still really, the, the Chancellor and the Treasury are just very allergic to the idea that you can just pull the plug on so much economic activity and that somehow it needs to be idling over, ticking over. Construction or estate agents or things like that. They're yeah. just all keeping going. And and I think the evidence, as I said, the evidence is that's a mistake, that you end up paying a longer term price because you just haven't suffocated the transmission of the disease enough to get a sufficient bounce back of economic activity that you can then sustain because as soon as you get all that activity, there's enough COVID in circulation that you just have another outbreak. Let's move on to free school meals, which is the other big story this week and seen as one of the major U-turns of last year when the government gave in to the pressure put onto them by, by the footballer Marcus Rashford to provide free school meals throughout the school holiday. And he has been raising his voice again. Um, what a campaigner he is, my God. Um, he should be in politics. As, as parents receive these meals, which are meant to be worth £30, and the pictures are just astonishing. I mean, if they spent two or three quid on them, I'd be surprised. 
uh, which, you know, the professional body for school meals said that don't meet the standards. The government were briefing extremely hard last night that they found them unacceptable and that, that they've ordered the company not only uh, to do better, but to compensate families who got these these parcels. But, you know, again, it's just an embarrassing fight for the government to have to deal with, isn't it? It looks appalling and particularly in a way that resonates with everything that people who don't like conservatives don't like conservatives for, which is the sense that uh, they are penny pinching, callous, uh, know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. All of those, the older famous brand toxins that have made conservative governments unpopular and have cost them power in the past are contained in exactly these sorts of episodes. And it is dangerous for, for the government. I mean, as well as just being wrong, it's dangerous for the government. What I think is interesting in this respect is that also coming down the track is this decision on whether to keep the bonus, the extra universal credit payment, the extra thousand pounds on universal credit, which was due to expire towards the end of last year. I think it's now been kept on until April, but they're going to have to make a decision about that. Now, the the reason that the the benefits package or the welfare safety net more broadly in this country is so threadbare and so unready to help people in an emergency like this is because of that 2010s, 2015-16 period where uh, George Osborne, David Cameron felt they had political license to cut very, very hard at the benefits system. And they felt comfortable doing that because they thought they had a cultural tailwind from people thinking benefits were a bit of a swizz and everyone was on the fiddle uh, and it was all sponges and scroungers. Now, setting aside how unpleasant that narrative might have been or how wrong or accurate it was or wasn't, uh, there was clearly that political license. Enough people thought that was true to be relaxed about the government saying, right, we're cutting all the benefits. Now, I think what's happening now is so obviously culturally different and the perception of why people need money and why they will need benefit payments is just in a different universe to the one we were in in those austerity budget years uh, that the the politics of of benefits and, and welfare are now in a totally different place. And it's interesting to see ministers and the government really scrambling to get their heads around how different that is. And it will be interesting to see how sustained that cultural change is uh, in the next few years. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there are still people in the cabinet who really come from that kind of, I guess, libertarian, you know, anti-government intervention, anti-spending wing of the Conservative Party in, you know, Kwasi Kwarteng's just joined the government. Um, Liz Truss is obviously reasonably influential there. Um, obviously, Sunak, Patel, they still come from that wing of the party. And, it, and it's going to be a difficult difficult few budgets over the next few years for Sunak, isn't it? Because of how much, as you say, the state is so threadbare. There is so little to cut if you need to make savings. And yet the, 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 finance, the government finances are in, in dire straits. And it feels like these kinds of scandals about free school meals are going to become quite a recurring pattern as the government kind of grapples with the economic fallout of this pandemic. Yeah, what the fiscal hawks worry about in government is that it's just so much harder to take these things away once you've given them out. With Rishi Sunak, I think he's in a very interesting position because he is 
a strange combination of pragmatism and ideology. All of his instincts, the foundations of his belief are essentially classic Thatcherite, small state, private enterprise over public intervention every day of the week. That's that's who he is politically and where he has come from. But he's also pretty agile and a good communicator. And he understood very quickly last year that the pandemic, the circumstances meant shredding all of that typical post-Thatcher consensus Tory economic policy and doing something completely different and basically raiding the playbook from social democracy. But I don't think he has actually understood or grasped the possibility that that is a paradigm change in the way that political economy will have to be run from now on. That if you want to do all the levelling up stuff, if you want to hold on to your red wall seats for the Tories, that really it's not just that you've sort of put all your Thatcherite thinking in a drawer ready to get out once the vaccine's gone into enough people's arms. This is a properly new chapter in political economy. I don't think Rishi Sunak actually understands that. And that's going to be a a problem uh, in the next couple of years because it will create a culture war inside the Conservative Party in terms of whether you're basically trying to get back to fiscal Thatcherism or just try and develop something completely new. It's going to be a fascinating few months leading up to the budget. Thanks ever so much, Raf. That was brilliant. Thank you for having me on. After the break, Lisa O'Carroll tells us how Brexit has affected UK trade to the EU so far. And I look at what some in the Labour Party are hoping is the year of Keir. We'll be right back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Jessica Elgott. Now, for many of us, New Year's Eve was a chance to celebrate the end of a very tough year and look ahead to a few months' time when things will hopefully start to look a bit brighter. But for Brexiteers, it was the moment they had long been waiting for. At 11pm on the 31st of December, Britain left the transition period with a deal that was scrambled together a week earlier on Christmas Eve. Coronavirus was always going to impact trade to and from the UK, especially after France implemented a travel ban after a new, more transmissible strain was detected in the southeast of England. But how exactly have things gone for UK businesses since Brexit became a reality? The Guardian's Brexit correspondent Lisa O'Carroll has this report. I was down in Dover on New Year's Eve. It was exceptionally quiet. There were a few, you know, a trickle of lorries coming down the ramp at 11 o'clock. There was like three or four media there. It was freezing cold. And then over at Eurotunnel, it was exactly the same very, very few trucks 
and it all went completely smoothly on the night. New Year's Day in Dover was also exceptionally quiet. And so I'm very pleased to tell you uh, this afternoon uh, that we have completed the biggest trade deal yet, worth £660 billion a year, a comprehensive Canada-style free trade deal between the UK and the EU. The only main difference, and I think this is something that people just did not understand, the only difference between no deal and a deal was tariffs um, and quotas. A deal which will, if anything, allow our companies and our exporters to do even more business with our European friends. Which are not something that will be visible to the naked eye. That's something that happens behind the scenes um, in terms of payments and transactions. So all the paperwork that is required now as a result of Brexit is required, whether it was required whether there's a deal or no deal. So that's customs declarations in both directions. I think a lot of people don't understand that customs declarations are required on imports. We've also got checks on, you know, what's called SBS sanitary and phytosanitary checks, and that essentially is checks on food and live animals. So all those checks happened, deal or no deal. The Guardian got access to um, the Eurotunnel estate in in Calais um, last Wednesday when myself and a photographer, um, David Levine, went over to see how Brexit checks were um, on the ground. You know, it wasn't dead as a doornail, but there was very, very, very few trucks there. 90% or so of the trucks, according to both Eurotunnel and the Department of Transport, um, were going through with all their paperwork done. So you can imagine those are the big, big companies who, who... have spent absolutely millions getting custom software and knew exactly what to expect, come what may. So they're sailing through. But then there were other others who weren't. Um, the thing that was significant was those that didn't have the full paperwork were being held up for quite some time. So we spoke to a guy who was bringing cheese from Somerset to um, Utrecht in Holland. He had been at the SBS check area, the sanitary and phytosanitary area, for 24 hours. So he was basically at the mercy of the supplier, not even his, the haulier company, it was the supplier who clearly didn't supply the full amount of paperwork and, and he was at their mercy. So it might be that we see the delays and we see a build-up of HGVs in the lorry parks rather than on the roads down close to Folkestone and Dover. You could call it the first casualty of Brexit, empty shelves in a Paris branch of UK retailer Marks & Spencer. There are hundreds of companies that we know have uh, told their customers that they are temporarily suspending or perhaps even ultimately halting services in terms of online retail or deliveries to um, the EU and to Northern Ireland, which um, we have to remember is complying with EU rules. Companies like North Face, popular outdoor clothing company, um, have problems we know there's a big a Dutch store, a bit like Tiger, called Hema, who have stopped um, uh, selling into the UK. Um, we know people like um, Amazon Prime, for example, if you're a subscriber, um, you won't be able to get that on holidays anymore because the streaming services are no longer part of the EU-wide digital portability agreement. John Lewis, uh, Fortnum and Mason have temporarily suspended services to the EU, so that's hitting you know, lots of British companies who would have ordered online from them. And I think we're just going to get more and more of this um, in the coming days and coming weeks. And above all, it means certainty for business. Uh, from uh, financial services to our world-leading manufacturers, our, our car industry, uh, certainty uh, for all those 
who are working in high-skilled jobs uh, and uh, in firms and uh, factories across the whole the whole country. The issue now is that the um, government has has had no time, or Whitehall has had no time, to translate the deal that um, was sealed on Christmas Eve into guidance, specific guidance that would tell companies what they have to do. If you go onto the um, gov.uk website, onto the Get Ready for Brexit rules, you can find yourself in this absolute warren of um, detail. You're not actually getting something that is applicable to you. And I think what businesses really, really wanted was, you know, some sort of phone line or, you know, a service where you could phone and say, this is my product. This is what I've been told. Is this correct? What should I do? So a lot of the smaller companies are struggling to find out what facts are correct. And we have like one company, I spoke to a wool company down in Devon, which have been told by its courier company, DPD, that the wool that it supplied to just knitters in Europe was no longer acceptable in uh, several EU companies. And it said, well, it had no confidence that it could sell its product into the EU anymore. Now, that, that guidance that they got was dated pre-deal. So, you know, if big courier companies like DPD are struggling to get the correct information out to their own customers, that, I think, is a reflection of the lack of information from, you know, the, from the top, from the government to, to businesses. I think it's going to obviously take months for things to settle down and the, the fact that the government has given British business six months to get to grips with the checks that are going to be imposed on imports suggests that um, we're looking at at least six months disruption and I guess there will also be a shakedown. Some companies will decide they're no longer it's no longer viable to sell to the EU. Some companies will decide they no longer want to sell into the UK. I, I guess, you know, everything that was predicted is going to happen now, isn't it? Which is disruption to the supply chain. When it was put in that some companies were choosing to pause or halt deliveries from the UK to the EU, the Cabinet Minister Michael Gove said he expected there to be significant additional disruption at UK borders as a result of Brexit customs changes in the coming weeks. He also admitted that it was the government's responsibility to make sure businesses and hauliers were ready and that it would be redoubling its efforts to communicate the precise paperwork that is required in order to make sure trade can flow freely. Now, starting a new job can be difficult in normal times, but trying to meet new colleagues and adapt to different work environments in the shadow of a pandemic brings with it a whole new set of challenges. Sir Keir Starmer knows that all too well. He was elected leader of the Labour Party a couple of weeks after the UK went into its first lockdown. The outbreak of COVID-19 made it difficult for the opposition leader to do anything but react to what the government was doing in response to the crisis, often at times meaning he simply had to back them for the greater good. But the Labour Party will be hoping that with vaccines in sight, 2021 will be different. Can the new leader set out a clear vision for what the party stands for post-pandemic? Is this the year of Keir? I put this to journalist Rachel Sharby and Stephen Bush, the political editor of The New Statesman. Stephen, I guess to start with 2020, it's not been the easiest year to be a new opposition leader because you have ha- he has had really, hasn't he, to be for the most part completely in reactive mode. How do you think people in the, in the wider party, and I know how long's a piece of string, will feel about his first year most broadly? I think the majority of people in, in the, the wider party, and I'm using as broad a definition uh, of that as, uh, as possible, 
will feel it has been a largely promising year, albeit with the, I would say, the quite important caveat that I would say broadly the same proportion of people who um, supported Keir Starmer's leadership at the start of his year did did so, but the composition of the criticism you'll hear is quite different. But I, I think overall, the thing I think people find strange is that it's very hard to assess how Keir Starmer is doing. I know it's very hard to say, imagine a world in which we hadn't had a pandemic and we hadn't had the EHRC report. But if you didn't have that, you wouldn't really have any Keir Starmer leadership calls. And so at the moment, I think broadly, I'd say the wider party still actually finds him a bit of a mystery. Rachel, I mean, there's there's, there's obviously been the reactive COVID response, and I, su- I suspect that's what we'll spend most of our time talking about. But just briefly about last, last year, the other defining m- moment that Stephen touched upon was how he's handled anti-Semitism, which is obviously something that massively dogged the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn, most obviously starting with the leaked report and then Rebecca Long-Bailey's sacking and then he had to deal with the HRC report and then the saga of Jeremy Corbyn's uh, suspension. There's clearly going to be a large, you know, a large chunk of the party who are going to be dissatisfied with that handling of it. But how do you think that handling has looked to the kind of wider party and to the wider public? I think it's been it's been quite confusing and that's because it is confused. So I think that his handling of the issue has been pretty poor and to be clear I thought uh, Corbyn's handling of the issue was pretty poor as well just in a different direction. This sort of uh, zero tolerance approach to anti-semitism that is adopted that is focused on weeding out the, the bad apples, you know, the certified anti-Semites in the party through a discipline process. Now, while of course it's important to do that, it doesn't really get at tackling a culture in which anti-Semitism is allowed to become an animating force. You don't do that with a zero tolerance approach. You do that with um, trying to build um, understanding and education. Um, so it goes much deeper than the sort of knee-jerk reaction of, of suspensions that people don't really understand that Starmer has fallen into. And I also would question his outsourcing, I suppose, of the issue to organisations outside the Labour Party. I'm thinking of organisations such as the Board of Deputies. I can't imagine any other issue where you would outsource policy that just doesn't make any sense on any issue. And it certainly doesn't on this one either. Stephen, how do you think it looks to the to the wider world? One of the things that, that I keep thinking about over and over again is that shortly after Jeremy Corbyn um, was suspended uh, on the day of the HRC report, I got a text from a very senior Tory who said to me, blimey, uh, that's slightly caveating the words, but uh, Keir Starmer really wants to be Prime Minister, doesn't he? And I wonder, you know, obviously that's a Tory view of things, but I wonder, is that is that how it looks to the outside world? Ultimately, right, the, the average person doesn't really understand Labour's anti-Semitism row. They understand broadly that the Labour Party is divided and then a bunch of people left because of it. It obviously did send a signal about his uh, level of commitment, but I think to the extent anyone normal, as it were, to use that slightly pejorative phrase, absorbed anything from it, it was, it was kind of a, oh, the Labour Party really does have a different leadership now. I think, yes, I think that's the, the, the kind of view possibly that this senior Tory was taking, like, this is a really, this really is a break and it's a demonstration of, of it being a break. Yeah, that's the thing is it's like, in terms of like things that are visible from space, it was a an act that was visible from space. I think the known unknown is 
is the impression people will have at the end of this process once they have their new uh, wholly independent process, which will, of course, be about all uh, forms of complaint. And I don't think anyone in the Labour Party has fully absorbed what a big shift that is going to be across the piece. Is is will the will the conclusion people have are the Labour Party has changed and it is united and well led, or will it be oh wow the Labour Party has changed but they still hate each other? Rachel, do you think that, that that there is a view now that the Labour Party is 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 broadly united, at least the parli- parliamentary party? There are some splits, and on on and on some other issues, we've seen that play out with the spy cops bill and Starmer just basically seemed to seem to act like a like a firefighter on that just, just just trying to sort of put fires out whenever they crop up do you think there's a there's a presentation of bit of broad unity or 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 do you think the public will still detect that there is some fractures i don't think there is a perception of unity because i think those fractures still continue to bubble to the surface and you know we just talked about the hrc and that being a, a source of sort of factional fighting again. Um, but there are other issues where that has arisen as well. And I think that that is a statement about his leadership and how disappointing that is, to put it mildly. I mean, clearly a chunk of the left supported Starmer's leadership bid and wanted him to succeed. He was seen as this unity candidate after a period of you know, just really destructive factional fighting. And his 10 pledges were viewed as things that he actually believed in a recognition of the party's shift to the left philosophically in terms of policy. So there was a lot of support and goodwill for him from the start. Uh, and I think that this has been squandered somewhat in the past year. Um, we haven't seen him champion those 10 pledges. In fact, we've seen him abandon them most recently the the commitment to freedom of movement. But more broadly, in a pandemic where, you know, inequalities have been brutally preyed upon and where the most vulnerable are the hit hardest and where a gutted out welfare state can't cope, people across the party and across the public want to see an opposition that is unified, but also that will stand up for people and that will fight for them. And we haven't really seen that. We haven't really seen Starmer build a story about the importance of collectivism in society or of the the urgent need for wealth redistribution policies. And the fact that we haven't really seen much of that has caused a lot of disbelief and then dismay within the Labour left. And it has sort of perpetuated these rifts that I think are still publicly visible. I think actually the, the, the policy disappointment from Starmer, I think, cannot be separated from people's reaction to how he dealt with Becky Long-Bailey's tweet and Jeremy Corbyn's reaction to the EHRC report. To be blunt, I just think it actually has nothing to do with the substance of of, of where they are on policy, not least because actually if, if you look at what they actually say in their speeches, they are still, you know, in a political position uh, significantly to the left of where Ed Miliband was in 2015 and, you know, basically about where Labour were in 2017. At the end of this year, one way or the other, Labour will have more policy definition. But ultimately, just as um, it didn't really matter in terms of how the voters felt that Labour in 2017 had a more um, regressive position on welfare than the Liberal Democrats because they had a tone of kind of um, anti-austerity, anti-cuts, we want all of this to change. The reason why perceptions of Starmer have changed are because of the actions he's taken on that internal issue rather than uh, his actual policy position. 
you need to lay the ground for your ideas now. You need to put those ideas and policies out there and debate them right now to raise awareness of them years ahead of an ele- election. So it's this absence of a theory of change, um, this lack of understanding that you know, a big chunk of the electorate has been captured by this sort of authoritarian flag waving. And when you're the left, you don't say, oh, we quite like fluttering that flag too, (laughs) you know, because all that does is give the right wing, this right wing animating force more power. And you can't control that or gain from that. So now is the time that you do make it the case for universalism. Now is the time that you make the case for uh, uh, the, the welfare state, for collectivism, for the sort of wealth redistribution policies that you need to tackle the horrendous inequalities in the society, the kind of actual recovery programs that the the economy needs to pull out after this pandemic. Now is the time that you actually put those policies out there. You don't just sort of tentatively talk about the incompetence of the government, because in this political climate, And with a pandemic on top, that really isn't going to get the left anywhere at all. Stephen, obviously, the uh, the key focus of Starmer's policy platform that he might set out over the next year is going to have to be the economy because there is going to be pretty much no other subject once the kind of teeth of the pandemic is past us that, that dominates the rest of the parliament. When I interviewed Starmer at the end of last year, he I asked him a bit about you know, what Starmerite economics looks like. And he basically said that it would be, he wasn't much be prepared to go much, a lot further than that his aim would be to grow the economy and create good jobs, which is fine. Do we have any sense of what his policy platform might look like beyond those sentences? Um, well, beyond those sentences, I actually think, to be honest, you've, you've, um, you've put your finger right on the issue slash vulnerability with kind of what is Starmerite economics. And it is broadly... Uh, and this is actually very common among Labour MPs, a kind of, oh, let's get the economy growing because growth is what allows us to do the fun stuff, which animates most Labour MPs, i.e. spending more money on schools, nurseries, healthcare. Now, I'm not saying those things aren't important. They, they obviously are, and they are electorally important. But in terms of the kind of actual nitty gritty of like type of economy, that's not the kind of thing that lots of Labour MPs actually get out of bed excited about. They have a kind of sort of, quite sort of like oh yeah I, I like the idea of us um, nationalizing the railways or whatever but but they don't have that kind of overarching economic vision uh, in in the way that in very different ways all of say John McDonnell, Gordon Brown, Ed Balls and, and Ed Miliband all had and I think it's quite interesting that like the one specific commitment Starmer has made in the year on economics has been to go yes of course I think taxes should go up on the top 5%, a reiteration of one of his his 10 pledges. Now, you can argue for the rightness of that in normal times, but it does directly fly against everything, basically anyone serious thinks about what you should do as the economy is coming out of the recession. And I think that will be the challenge for his shadow chancellor is the fact that Starmerite economics, I think, is primarily going to be a product of other people because it's not his animating political force, which is kind of libertarian left extension of his work as a human rights lawyer and that is going to be an interesting challenge because I think yeah you're exactly right and it will be the big challenge of the year. Often the criticism we 
we hear, Rachel, is that, you know, from, from people who perhaps don't vote Labour or, or, or haven't recently, is that Labour doesn't talk positively about the country. And there seems to be an attempt by Starmer to start talking in a much more positive way about the pride in where people live, what you might loosely call patriotism. Now, this clearly is, you know, the, the, the Labour Party hasn't had an easy relationship with this kind of rhetoric. Um, and when it's been attempted before by other politicians, it has seemed, unna- it seemed perhaps unnatural. What do you think of, of, of Starmer kind of attempting to present that kind of vision? Yeah, I think that is such an important question. You know, it really gets to the heart of the sort of challenge that, that the left is in at the moment, because we're we're in this very right-wing uh, political terrain where if you're not constantly cheerleading about, you know, the great, glorious Britain and the sunny uplands of, of Brexit, then you are, you know, accused of doing Britain down, of wanting to Britain, Britain to fail, of all those things. Whereas it seems to me that Labour uh, and the left has you know, just as much purchase on wanting to be positive about Britain, but just needs to really switch that narrative because there is no profit for the left from that narrative. All you'll do is signal boost it for the right. But what you can do is build a different inclusive politics that looks at, you know, what are what are people proud of in Britain? You know, is it is it the fact that we look out for each other as we have done in this pandemic? Is it the welfare state, the NHS? Is it building genuinely inclusive society where everybody is treated equally? It still feels to me like we're not quite there on whether 2021 will be the year of Kia, but I suppose only really the public can tell us that. Rachel Shabby, Stephen Bush, thanks ever so much. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks so much for having me. That's all from us this week. For anyone wanting to know more about the UK's plan for vaccine rollout, Listen to today's episode of our sister podcast, Today in Focus, with Robin McKee. In the US, impeachment is the word doing the rounds in Washington, D.C., so make sure to listen to Politics Weekly Extra later in the week when Jonathan Friedland speaks to Noah Feldman, a Harvard Law professor who testified at the previous impeachment hearings in 2019. And as always, you can find that in the usual Politics Weekly feed. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Raphael Baer, Lisa O'Carroll, Stephen Bush and Rachel Sharby. The producer is Danielle Stevens. I'm Jessica Elgott. Please look after yourselves and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.